Hey, podcast fans, this is Chris Webster, founder of the APN, and I just want to thank you for downloading this episode. Please consider becoming a member of the APN if you're not already and helping us make more great shows and get them out to the world. Head over to arcpodnet.com slash members or click the link in the show notes. On to the show. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. And welcome to The Dirt, a podcast about archaeology, anthropology, and our shared human past. I'm Anna. And I'm Amber. And thank you all so much. First of all, thank Anna. Thank you, Anna. You don't have to thank Anna. I'm thanking Anna. But thank you all, all of y'all, uh, for your patience with us, specifically me, um, as we navigated some real bumps in the road these past few weeks, specifically me. Um, we are always blown away by the community that y'all have created around the show and by your support, your generosity, and your understanding when we, two humans with lives and jobs, get bogged down by our lives and or jobs. So mm-hmm. thank you. Like genuinely thank you. Truly. And speaking of support, we got to shout out a whole passel of patrons. How's that for a, a collective? Noun. A passel. Passel. Thank you to Tom, Claire, Pierce, William, and CT for subscribing over at patreon.com slash the dirt podcast. And we hope you enjoy your bonus content, of which there will be more soon as we get back on track. Yep. And um, that track that we happen to be getting back onto today is a cool one. Uh, we've got exciting episodes lined up and a couple of very special guests that we're looking forward to. Some of which is like news to me because I've just been so out of touch with everything. You um, like you like our guest I, that, that you don't know. <laughs> oh God, I'm so sorry, everyone. But let's not get too ahead of ourselves. Far what? I mean, it would have worked if you hadn't you you betrayed yourself. Um, let's, let's, let's just let's take it slow. Um, this week we've got a short and sweet episode for you. Literally. We're talking about sweet things. And it's literally a short episode. Okay. Yeah, so <laughs> so here's how this topic happened. I saw a Facebook post. Oh, no. I told you yes. to stop. <laughs> <laughs> it's a one time a day when I look at Facebook before I remember that I don't like it. Oh, God. Um, no, this was a good one. This was via a friend from the Association of Tribal Archives, Libraries, and Museums. Oh, And it was okay. basically... Yeah, it was basically a reminder that in parts of North America, it's currently maple tapping and syruping time and to consider getting your maple syrup from indigenous sources because there are lots of indigenous owned yeah. companies in in Canada and the US that that produce maple syrup for consumption. And I realized when I when I read that, that was something that I really hadn't thought about very much. I, I know a little bit about maple sugaring because I, I grew up in Connecticut and, and my folks live in Massachusetts and I've been to some local festivals, some sugaring festivals um, where people make maple syrup using traditional methods. But then I thought about just sort of sweeteners in general and sugar mm-hmm. and sugar cane. And I realized I knew even less about that than I did about maple syrup. So uh-huh. here we are. Okay. Yeah. Oh, fun. Oh, this is fun. Yeah. yeah, yeah so that's, that's, this is a very shallow dive of, okay. a, of an episode because it's just sort of like, huh, I don't know much about that. 
let me poke around. So yeah, this is, I well, mean, this is so the result of that. This will be a lot better than what I had because uh, when I read things as a child, you sort of yeah. learn things and you kind of absorb stuff like sure. as, as like knowledge. And you're like, I think I know this. And then, you know, like 20 years later, you're like sharing an anecdote at a party and they're like, what are you talking about? And be like, I feel like I just like made that up. Like I would have passed a lie detector test, but like that was oh, completely just... false. Oh, like, okay. That, that sort of you, thing. You've convinced yourself that something is, is true because you read it somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. Okay. Um, and I've so, certainly been guilty of that. Yeah. And, On and this show. I feel <laughs> I feel like um, maple syrup and maple Mm. sugaring is one of those things because when I was a child, I got really into like white girls being Mm -hmm. raised in like indigenous communities, like in early America. Okay. Um, And and so that is something that there are a few um, like sort of famous fiction, like famous and then like fictionalized yeah, um, yeah there are a couple of historical well like cases, specifically but... in the area that i am from ah okay so so communities and like people who were um people who were were uh, brought into the community or raised or whatever sure. yeah um, however they ended up there in uh sort of the like around fort duquesne in what's near what state Pittsburgh and mm-hmm. sort of Western Virginia. And so I knew, I read a lot of these stories that like in hindsight, mm. deeply racist stories. Um, I mean, but there was also like, there was also attention paid to um, sort of being involved in the, like in the community and the, the community life sure. and that they're like that, and one of these, one of the things that they did was they, um, they traveled to, uh, like a maple, like basically like a maple, a maple grove. grove. Yeah. And, um, and so there was like a, a lengthy description of mm-hmm. sort of that process. Mm-hmm. And like, I don't know if any of that was true. So let's find out. <laughs> so I will find <laughs> out. But listener. You might be wondering, as I certainly am now, <laughs> um, how does one make the maple syrup? I can get local. There's like local maple syrup at the community market downtown. Yeah. And I'm just like, where'd you get it? And so I like drove home and like looked at the maple tree in my neighbor's yard and was like, can I, can I syrup that? Yeah, you, can, you could. Uh, what one could. Um, yeah. So, but like, when did someone figure out that you could turn like, clear tree juice into delicious sticky gloop like basically like you you like you like damage the tree and then it kind of like bleeds you're like mm. it's, oh it's not ex- i mean uh. <laughs> is that okay Ki- I mean, is that what we'll it is the- don't i mean it is <laughs> okay so this is like sort of like that whole like who ate the first oyster <laughs> question that like sam redmond wants to answer like with his time machine uh which I'm going to tell you, I have not stopped thinking about it. No, I occasionally, uh, it'll pop into my head every so often and I just go, oh, gross. As to that part about making maple syrup. Yeah. Um, maple syrup is produced by tapping maple trees for their sap at the beginning of spring, which is arguably Roughly now. Roughly now. Not yeah. specifically today during a snowstorm, but two days ago and sure. two days from now. 
because that's when things are like thawing out and the sap begins to flow. Mm-hmm. Um, so Anna looked into this for a while. <laughs> so uh, this is what we've been doing. I've been I've been at work and crying, and Anna's been working out and reading about sap and trees, and also and also at work. Yeah, but like not today, a Saturday. No, <laughs> working out a lot. Um, Very strong. He's so strong. And I am so weak. <laughs> you fell down. You fell down and hurt yourself. Uh, uh, okay. So it seems that the actual way that maple sap flows isn't completely understood by Anna, and not just Not just by me, but like actual or tree scientists. anyone else. <laughs> yeah. Um, so it is temperature dependent. So when the temperature starts to consistently be above 32 degrees Fahrenheit, it creates a pressure difference in the sapwood of the tree. And sap, which is just water mixed with sugars that the tree has made through photosynthesis and stores as starch for energy supply. Uh, so is it, act- so it's 32 degrees because of when, the, when that sapwood starts to consistently be unfrozen. Okay. So, so it could like be, when a, the sapwood it could be the a different temperature than that. Like yes, it could be okay. a different temperature outside, but the tree has has thawed. Essentially, no, I was saying, like that threshold might not be thirty two degrees because the sugar would. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. The the, the mm-hmm. freezing point. Yeah, it's uh, around there though. Okay, sort of the other side of the coin of when deciduous trees start mm-hmm. turning colors, like when yeah, it, it's, it's cool it's enough that it stops signal. doing that. Uh huh. So I was starting to do that. Okay, great. Mm-hmm. Now so, we're tree scientists. So if you drill a hole through the tree's bark and into the sapwood, which is what? Anna? <laughs> phloem. It's the phloem. The, the phloem. So, phloem. Yeah, so if 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 y'all remember Xylem and Phloem from high school bio. Okay, so is it is it actually phloem? It's not yes. like a British spelling of like phlegm? No, <laughs> no it's a different word. Okay. And it is phloem. Okay. Yeah. So I do xylem remember and- xylem. It means wood. Yep. <laughs> Good job. Thanks. Both of those are plant tissues that carry fluids. So xylem carries water and minerals up to the leafy parts of a plant. So the minerals that it has absorbed through groundwater. And phloem carries food water, which is water that is enriched with those sugars that the plant is making, down to the roots for storage, where it's turned into starches for storage. So okay. when you when you are trying to make maple syrup, you are interrupting that flow. You don't want the tree to store everything as starch. You want to get at some of those sugars first. So you're interrupting the phloem? Is that what you said? You're interrupting your, yep, you're breaking the phloem. If you tap into that sapwood, you create a slight release in the pressure system inside the tree. Some of that sap is going to trickle out. That's what people do, did, continue to do, mm-hmm. have done. Mm-hmm. Yeah? Okay. Yeah, for a long time. And I don't, you know, I asked the question earlier, when did people start doing this? I don't actually know because it is an indigenous practice that has been going on for a long time. So this was something that people did in the Americas long, long before any Europeans got to North America. And for those indigenous groups, maple sugaring is deeply connected to cosmology and spirituality. So I've got a book club recommendation for us. Probably mentioned it before on the show. Not sure, but it's Braiding Sweetgrass by Robin Wall Kimmerer. Um, it was mentioned by Maddie. Yes. It was first, it was first recommended Dr. by... Dr. Maddie von Beyer. Yes. 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 And so um, 
Kimmerer talks about maple sugar a little bit in the book, but in general, it's just such a fantastic, beautifully written book about the intersections between plant biology, indigenous practice, and indigenous history and oppression and and family stories. Um, so I I kind of want to read it again, but my, my pile is so big of things I haven't read yet. <laughs> So in Braiding Sweetgrass, Kimmerer, who is a member of the Potawatomi Nation, talks about the legend of how syrup came to be a seasonal resource in the legend of Nanabojo, who is the original man. So sort of um, a spiritual figure. I'll, I'll get into that. But I'm going to quote here from nativelanguages.org, which is a really cool site. Quote, Nanabojo is the benevolent culture hero of the Anishinaabe tribes. His name is spelled so many different ways, partially because the Anishinaabe languages were originally unwritten. So English speakers who who were sort of transcribing just spelled the name however it sounded to them at the time, which is, you know. I'm probably French, too. Probably. Yeah. Any any European colonizing I'm just saying given the 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 location you're talking about. Yeah. And this is also partially because the Ojibwe Algonquin Potawatomi and Menominee languages are spoken across a huge geographical range in both Canada and the United States. And the name sounds different in the different languages and dialects that those people speak. So stories about Nanabojo vary, and I really hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, but they vary considerably from community to community. And so this is a figure that's usually said to be the son of either the West Wind or the sun, S-U-N. And Nanabojo is a trickster figure and can be a bit of a rascal. But unlike trickster figures in some tribes, he does not model immoral and seriously inappropriate behavior. So not like, I think it's like coyote in some myths can be a real jerk. Um, Nanabojo is a virtuous hero and a dedicated friend and teacher of humanity. Though he may behave in mischievous, foolish, and humorous ways in the course of his teaching, Nanabojo never commits crimes or disrespects native culture and is viewed with great respect and affection by Anishinaabe people. End quote. It's Chris Webster again. If you haven't checked out our new parent website, culturomedia.com, then please do. Culturo is spelled K-U-L-T-U-R-O, and it's where we promote all of our live events. We've got one coming up in November. Check it out over at Culturo when it gets posted. If it's already happened and you're hearing this, then as a member, you can go to your member pages and see the event recording. Our live events are always free, but you have to show up during the event to see it. So that's culturomedia.com for all our live events and more. Culturomedia.com. Chris Webster here, founder of the APN and host of several shows. I just wanted to let you know about our membership program and what it offers. Members of the APN get, for just $7.99 a month or cheaper if you pay for the year, ad-free episodes so you don't have to listen to me on the breaks, membership in our Slack team so you can continue the conversation with hosts and other members, and exclusive access to any of our live event recordings. Live events are always free, but you only get to watch the recording if you're a member. So head over to arcpodnet.com slash members for more info and to become a member. Our podcasts are always free, but this is just a little something extra and it really helps us out. That's arcpodnet.com slash members. This is Chris Webster with the APN. I'm also a project manager for several industries. I wouldn't be able to keep on track with really anything if it wasn't for Motion. With Motion, I just say what I need to do, how long I think it will take, what sort of priority I think it has, and Motion builds my day for me. 
It'll even build in breaks because, let's be honest, it's hard to remember to stop to eat lunch sometimes. So head over to arcpodnet.com slash motion for a free trial and a discount if you sign up. You'll kick back a small amount to the APN if you do. That's arcpodnet.com slash motion. All right. Well, um, in, in these indigenous legends at one time, all maple trees produce syrup like you get right out of the bottle from the store. Thick, delicious, caramely, flowing out of the trees all the time. So when people discovered how to tap trees and drink the stuff, they became obsessed with it. Which, like, yeah, I get it. Yeah. Um, and only wanted to lie around drinking syrup. Uh, Nana or Borgia, like briefly get up and run around real fast and then take a nap. No, I think <laughs> I, I think you just sort of like syrup coma. You, they're just sort of like, oh, well, nosh. <laughs> um, but so, it's so good. Nana Bojo saw this and realizing the disadvantages of too much of a good thing, transformed maple syrup into thin, watery liquid with only a trace of sweetness that had to be boiled before it came the good stuff. Moreover, he made the sap run only once a year instead of all the time so that people would appreciate the importance of the maple trees and their sacrifice. In Oneida culture, people hold ceremonies both before and after producing maple syrup. This is done, quote, to honor the maple tree for creation's cooperation during the harvesting of the sap, end quote. Yeah. And so I don't know that other cultures don't do this. I just found this specific example. So I'm sure that other groups have some sort of ceremonial approach to maple, maple sugaring, but this is the example I found. Okay. Um, and so this comes from, um, the, the following comes from a document produced by the Oneida Cultural Heritage Department, uh, which was compiled by Randy Cornelius and edited by Judith Jordan, uh, which says, quote, with each of the ceremonies of the traditional annual cycle, as well as all social and or political gatherings, the first thing that is always done before all else is what's called the opening, the acknowledgement, honoring, and thanksgiving of all creation. Likewise, at the end of the day, the process is repeated. This is known as the closing. This is a constant reminder of the relationship that all creation has with each other and that we humans are just one strand in the delicate web of life. The first ceremony is the maple tree tobacco burning. The ceremony is held at the end of February or the first part of March after the first thunder, which wakes up the trees. It all depends on the weather. Oh, doesn't it? Um, When the warm winds once again begin to circulate, a day is set aside to give thanks. A tobacco burning is done to honor the maple tree. Each camp in the community will have their own tobacco burning. A small fire is built near a maple tree. The words in the tobacco burning asks all of creation for a safe time while the people are in the woods working, thus calling on the creator to assure that no great harm comes to those harvesting the sap. At the end of the process is maple tree Thanksgiving, or the closing. Once the camps are all done harvesting the sap and everything is cleaned up, a day is picked by the faith keepers to give thanks for what the people have been able to harvest. At this time, the sap is used as medicine for everyone to drink and give thanks. End quote. Mm-hmm. And the process of turning maple sap into syrup is a long, slow one. So like like good barbecue. I keep it low and slow. Maple sap is only <laughs> but, about... But not too low. 
but not too low and not too slow because you will get food poisoning, <laughs> but not from maple sap. So maple sap is only about 2% sugar. So to make a single gallon of maple syrup, you need 40 whole gallons of sap, which is incidentally mm. why it's relatively expensive because there's there's a uh, a high input at low output. Traditionally, the sap is collected throughout the beginning of spring and then boiled during a specific period, usually about a week or so, maybe longer. Different groups use different tools, but generally there was some sort of vessel, whether made from bark or a hollow log or later metal, uh, suspended over a low fire. You get your sap to a boil and then you keep it simmering and stir it until that 98% water is mostly gone and the color has gone from clear to golden brown. And you keep adding sap as the level drops and drops and drops as the water evaporates out. If you want to take a deeper dive into those traditional processes and some related ethnographies, we'll include a few links in the show notes so you can check those out over at thedirtpod.com slash episodes. There's a particularly good article uh, from 2018 called Colonialism, Maple Syrup, and Ways of Knowing by Krista McCracken that I'm going to pull from here to round out this section. Quote, How can we talk about indigenous knowledge in relation to maple syrup? In 1996, the Royal Commission on Aboriginal Peoples reported that Canada's education systems privileged Western knowledge while indigenous ways of knowing were frequently dismissed and viewed as inferior. Uh, this, is a, this is a Canadian article she's writing specifically about Canadian First Nations peoples. Okay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. This disconnect between academic knowledge and traditional land-based knowledge is still felt in many post-secondary institutions today, with indigenous scholars being pressured to work within colonial structures. An artistic approach to acknowledging this loss and the colonial impact on maple syrup can be seen in OO Canada, a 2016 collaborative project which created unsettled maple sugar candies. The candies came in numerous shapes, including buffalo, barbed wire, a noose, and other items representing the harm inflicted toward the land and indigenous peoples. Distributed at public commemoration events and to the general public, these indigenous-designed maple candies challenged settler Canadians to think about colonialism in relation to a product that is commonly associated with the national identity of Canada, end quote. And this is true in the U.S. as well in terms of um, indigenous knowledge within colonial structures, not to specifically throw Canada under the colonialist jerk bus. So we're going to be talking a lot more about indigenous land stewardship and practices in an upcoming episode. So I don't want to spoil that too much. So stay tuned. And if you listening you with the ears, are someone who studies or takes part in indigenous stewardship practices, or you know someone who does, who might want to talk with us, please, please contact us at thedirtpodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to talk to them. We'd always rather give a platform to someone closely tied to the research or the knowledge rather than have us tell you about it third or fourth hand. So with that, we will take a quick break and be right back with more sweets. Hey fans of APN Podcasts, we've got lots of designs over at our Tee Public store. Every purchase helps out the APN with a few cents back to us. Check out the high quality t-shirts, stickers, phone cases, coffee mugs, and a lot more. There are lots of colors to choose from in most of those items, and Tee Public often runs 30% discounts. So check out the store at arcpodnet.com slash shop. That's arcpodnet.com slash shop, and click on the link. And we're back. And we're not talking about honey. So everybody just unclench. I just, it's okay. 
It's okay. I don't know. I don't know how many people. Yeah. For those of you realized. who haven't listened to episode three of the show, when I jumped to the shark, um, I tell a you did mildly, not get three. Three. <laughs> I tell a mildly traumatic story about honey. You can, um, you can find if it you on want, our website. If you want. It's on, it's also on SoundCloud. So it's on SoundCloud. Yes. Caveat auditor, I guess. Um, so, uh, instead, cause I'm not allowed to tell that story again. Um, we're going to do the second half of this little short and sweet episode about sugar cane. Yes. <laughs> Why did you say it like that? I don't know. I just, okay. Um, also sugar yes. cane, uh-huh. big, Delicious. so well, sugar cane well, is actually a grass. Do you mean in popularity or physically? <laughs> Yeah. Uh, so sugarcane is actually a grass. Its botan- botanical name is Saccharum officinarum L. Yeah, um, there's a subspecies designation. It's just L. Um, so it looks a bit like bamboo, which is also a grass, and it can reach heights of three to six meters. Which, Big. Yeah. So um, have you ever been in a sugarcane area? Field? I've not, but I've seen very long sugarcane stalks in stores. Well, there is something very unsettling. I imagine it's very claustrophobic. Um, so I've not been in, well, yeah, I've not been in one. I have been next to one. Uh, do they rattle in the wind? Seems like they, they would. Do. Um, hmm. They do. They kind of like whisper. When, one of the times that I ran away, um, mm-hmm. I went mm-hmm. to Belize. Um, and so I went inland so i went to um orange walk and so i took a little i got in a little plane and i got there and it is a it's like that that airport was also like where they got their mail and they got Mm -hmm. like other stuff and so it was a like dirt like a packed earth Mm -hmm. uh, runway um Mm -hmm. that is just next to a like a stand of of sugarcane like 20 feet high just like solid, just like dense, and it sort of whispers and shakes, and you can't see it. It look it seems like it's dark in there. Yeah, um, well, and and so it was a a. Um, there is something to be said for it as like a site of violence. Um, sure, and so there was a lot of fear. Uh, there there was sort of a lot of fear among sort of like the expat community of just like these like wild. The, the, the sugar cane was this like sort of like dark, like unknowable place that you could just be like, if you were met with foul play, your body could be very easily yeah, disposed good place to of hide a body. and not found. And that there were a few in- cases Absolutely of that. seen that as a, as a plot point in a procedural. So sugar cane, though, not just a scary, scary grass. By around 8000 BCE, there is evidence from plant remains phytoliths, uh, that sugar cane was being cultivated or managed by um, the indigenous people of what is today New Guinea, um, who chewed the inner fibers of the plant raw, which is delicious. It is. Um, It was also used as fodder for pigs before the introduction of the sweet potato around 250 years ago. So for a long time. Yeah. So the pigs were like, the, 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 the pigs are like, oh, excuse me. I like what the is other this? One better. <laughs> That's just this orange nonsense. Just sending this back. Can pigs see color? I don't um, know. So the sugarcane plant traveled with Polynesian groups and quickly became established through the Pacific Islands and then spread to what is today Indonesia, the Philippines, and India. 
Quoting from the New York Times, here's a very concise summation of the colonial nightmare that followed. For thousands of years, cane was a heavy and unwieldy crop that had to be cut by hand and immediately ground to release the juice inside, lest it spoil within a day or two. Even before harvest time, rows had to be dug, stalks planted, and plentiful wood chopped as fuel for boiling the liquid and reducing it to crystals and molasses. Mm -hmm. From the earliest traces of cane domestication on the Pacific island of New Guinea 10,000 years ago to its island-hopping advance to ancient India in 350 BCE, sugar was locally consumed and very labor-intensive. It remained little more than an exotic spice, medicinal glaze, or sweet for elite pilates. I, I didn't send you this, I don't think, but Google wanted me to write elite pilates. <laughs> I don't understand like Google What's spell checks like lately? you found anti-intellectualism. Like, yeah. it's just, it's like, it's like, did you mean Pilates? I was like, I, was like, I did not. No, I didn't. Thank you. It was the introduction of sugar slavery in the new world that changed everything. Over, four, over the four centuries that followed Columbus's arrival on the mainlands of Central and South America and Mexico, Guyana and Brazil, as well as on the sugar islands of the West Indies, Cuba, Barbados, and Jamaica, among others, countless indigenous lives were destroyed and nearly 11 million Africans were enslaved, just counting those who survived the Middle Passage, end quote. Um, also, um, man, really sorry, everyone, that I did not prepare for this episode, but a historian I know, I uh, was talking to him about something that he was working on about the, um, the role of sugar in the industrial revolution oh, okay um, that production and processing of sugar made caffeinated beverages more palatable it also is like mm. cheap fast energy and so it yeah. was a way to it revolutionized keep your workers working longer it revolutionized the nature of other forms of exploitative labor but yeah it has a role not only like an economic role but also when it was able to be produced at that level, it was able to engender other forms of highly exploitative yeah. uh, labor extraction. The history of sugar is one that is closely intertwined with production, with exploitation of, uh, of labor, of lives, um, and like almost unfathomable violence. This also is involved with other things that come from sugar, like molasses and rum, which come from sugar cane. Um, yes, and so like all of this is much more nuanced and extensive than we're able to do justice in this episode. Um, so we will be revisiting that aspect of the sugar trade someday. Um, but also just like think about just in that like brief paragraph that we shared from the New York Times and also like. That one time I stood five feet away from sugarcane and felt freaked out um, of just like, it's really hard to work with. And mm -hmm. so the um, Pacific Island were who sort of first domesticated it and, yeah. and produced uh -huh. it and processed it. They were not doing it on a massive scale. No, it was community level. It was community level. And it was also the, the ways in which they used it weren't 
Not a lot of processing. Exactly. All the time. They were sort of yeah, like they you, used it chewing raw. on it to release to release the sugar as like fresh sugar cane. Have you ever had mm, fresh sugar cane? Sure have. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and I've so had things grilled on skewers of sugar it's like cane. A very, oh, yeah, it's like a very like delicious, special thing. Um, mm-hmm. but that is not that is not the same thing as what happens like in the sugar that we get today. And no. a lot of that, like a lot of like setting aside gosh, I feel bad saying that. And then the next words are going to be setting aside the, like the nature of agricultural practices today. Um, like, and sort of those, those sorts of like exploitation that, mm-hmm. that happens there. This is not work you can actually do if you care about the people doing it. The, sh- the sugar, like sugar cane and the sugar industry was made possible because of slavery, because yes. there was a seemingly unending supply of of free of, labor, of labor and of lives and of bodies to just kind of throw on like the mm. like th- like to just like burn through, yeah. um, which is which Rough is how like that's also how the cotton industry works. Yeah. And and both of those industries today also rely heavily on. Um, underpaid, exploitative, unpaid, yeah, and indentured labor. Yeah, um, and so we'll talk about that some other time. We'll get, or there. you can just like I guess show up at a party that I'm at, and I'll like ruin your night by talking about it. Amber, tell um, me about sugar. Oh no! <laughs> <laughs> Instead of doing that more, um, <laughs> we've got a couple. <laughs> <laughs> no, you say instead, and then I just like talked for ten minutes. Um, instead of uh, instead, we're gonna do a couple more archaeological case studies that show how sugar was being produced and used in different parts of the world well before the sugar production industry and and like sugar slavery came into its own. Yeah. That said, though, the this case that I this case study that I gave you does seem to be an example of sugar production on a larger scale not industrial but more than community it was a a good what yeah, is it called it like a, a like a product what is anna yeah product is that yeah. what you call them i mean like something yeah. that you make and then you have a surplus a commodity you sell it a commodity god thank you That's, oh my gosh <laughs> oh okay so at work two days ago i was in a meeting and i could not remember the word cosmetics and what okay. my brain like in scrambling for that word what my brain came up with was condiment and i was like it's like a condiment but for your face we got there like i had such a brain fart i was just like all my brain can think of is condiment what is the word for a condiment but it's on your face and one of my coworkers was like of language isn't it (laughs) face sauce this is from (laughs) a note on archaeological evidence for sugar production in the middle islamic periods in bilirasham 2004, Catherine Strange-Burke, the Middle East Documentation Center. So also, um, mm. Bilal Osham, um, yes. that is greater Syria. Okay, thank you. Quote, Tel Der Allah is a large mound on the east side of the Jordan Valley, close to the Zerka River. Excavations from 1960 to 1967 by Hank. <laughs> Yeah, his name is Hank. H-E-N-K. The Dutch. (laughs) 
Hank J. Frank. Franken of the University of Leiden revealed intensive Late Bronze Age and Iron Age occupation. But in the Islamic periods, the site was used as a cemetery, presumably contemporaneous with the adjacent site of Tel Abu Qadan. Some of the grave goods include sugar molds and syrup jars. Syrup. 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 I say syrup, but I'm a product of my environment. Syrup. Syrup. Um, So there were thousands of body shirts found belonging to the above described sugar sugar pots. They do Um, describe them. I just took out that paragraph because it was just very dryly describing some ceramics. You don't love ceramic descriptions? I I find them like soothing. Yeah. Okay. Well, uh, listeners, write in and Amber will send you uh, a recording of just oh. ceramic shirts <laughs> for your for your bedtime story needs. I'm turning into a voice memo guy. You've not had to deal with this yet, but like. Good. I like our texts. <laughs> but like I'm becoming a voice memo guy. So if you want a voice memo of me just like reading some. Maybe we um, could make that a, a Patreon tier or something. Just like commodity. These conical molds, these having a single small hole in the base and syrup jars, uh, which are generally described as bag shaped. Same. And are handleless and almost rimless. Both types of sugar pot are usually of somewhat coarse red or white firing wares, thickly potted. Same. (laughs) (laughs) Only the interiors of the molds are smoothed. According to studies of those at Deir Allah and Abu Qadan, they were made with a combination of coil-built and wheel-thrown techniques. The molds come in various heights, keeping a generally standard rim diameter. They seem to be roughly standardized to three different capacities. Yeah. Uh, this dates to the 8th century CE, so that yeah, is the Middle Islamic period here. Um, yeah, and, and so clearly they were standardizing their amounts, and because we, I mean, you can infer from thousands of body shirts, pretty pretty substantial production amounts. Um, so it was probably a larger scale operation, but again, not industrial. And it was sugarcane. Yeah, I don't think it was date. Um, I found this in an article about sugarcane. So well, no, because like date syrup is produced differently. Okay. That you have so with date syrup, you do um, ha, it's it's something called a madbasa, and oh, I like that it's, word. Um, it looks so. What I've seen in archaeological context, it looks kind of like a soap dish, like a standard okay, soap sure. dish, like where it um, you gotta keep is the soap a shallow. It's the... a shallow dish, and it's got sort of like ridges. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and, and so it's just for traction. Yeah, yeah, right for the soap dish, but it's it would you have that and it was sort of at an angle, and so uh-huh. that you have you would put like a washboard almost, not that steep of an angle. So oh, let me okay. describe how it works, and then you'll see why the the why the angle is good. Um, so you have um, so you would put weight, you would put weight on it, and so it would compress the dates, push the, the dates. syrup out, the dibs, and mm-hmm. um, it would run down, and then sort of pool and then be diverted off for processing. So mm-hmm. it's just a press. It's like a, a date press. Yeah. And then you determine which batch is yours and you yell dibs. Mm. Mm. But yeah, a madbasa because it's madbasa. the same word. So dibs is in it. So it's the thing that you oh, use dib- to make the dibs. Yeah. 
Madbsa. Gotcha. The primary evidence for the timing of the domestication of sugarcane is genetic. So I found some articles about that, but they are pretty dense. Um, we will link to one in the show notes that is dense and also behind a paywall, but I will summarize it here. <laughs> so, like, sorry. I mean, you can uh, read the abstract. Well, welcome to academia. <laughs> That's what it is. So in domestication in general, desirable traits are selected by whoever is doing the domesticating. And this alters the genome of a species over time. That's how domestication works. It also decreases, typically, decreases genetic diversity in subsequent generations of a species because the genes or alleles, which are just different flavors of gene, for undesirable traits get weeded out over time. So you're, you're decreasing the diversity of the types of genes that are available in a given genome. But in sugarcane... Sugar content and total plant yield, so like total biomass that, that sugar cane grows as, are controlled by multiple genes in multiple different places in the genome, on, on the chromosomes. So in sugar cane, it's more complicated because it's not just one or two simple changes. And actually, in this data set, the researchers found that domesticated varieties had more genetic diversity than the wild version. So the major changes in the sugarcane genome that correspond to domestication have to do with how the plant metabolizes sugar. Those pathways are, as the article put it, and I really enjoyed this, perturbed, oh. meaning that the cane plant keeps more sugar as sugar rather than storing it as starch, which is what you want, because then when you when you crush the, the sugarcane for the juice, it's not starch. You don't have to break it further down into the sugars that make up the starch. It's already the sugars. So that means that domesticated sugar cane is easier to process and they don't have to cook the, the cane as you would if you were trying to make sugar out of, for example, beets, which are another sugar crop. Like there are like parts of the world where like the sugar market, like like if you are buying sugar. Beets all the way down, baby. It's beets? It's beets. And can it be? What I is think this? sucrose is C12H26O11. letters and numbers to me? Anyway, it's, it is... Something that exists on a molecular level and, and that's not patented. So like you can, if it's sugar, you can say it's sugar because it is that molecule. White table sugar comes from either sugar cane or sugar beets and is usually sold without its plant source clearly identified. This is because chemically speaking, the two products are identical. I wanted to know like if I go, like if I, if I go if to go Kroger, get a cup of sugar. And like get a bag of sugar, is it going to be like, this is from all American beets? Or is it going to be like, I didn't like. <laughs> I'm glad. No, I'm glad you looked that up. Now we know. Oh. Go on. Vegan. If you get white vegan sugar, hmm. that sugar is, that is from, from beets because um, beet sugar is white, but sugar cane sugar is has to be processed with bone char. Oh, interesting. So yeah. also, like, um, I'm, I'm bringing it back around, saving it. So, friends, your white sugar, your granulated sugar, your Dixie Crystals, uh, probs not vegan. Yeah. Think about it. But first, think about this. The first chemically refined sugar that we know of shows up in India about 2,500 years ago. So I found a 1964 journal article that is mostly a linguistic study of all the vocabulary around sugar. Uh, and that was very interesting. I browsed it, but it is well out of date and does in fact contain the sentence, quote, that sugarcane is indigenous to India is beyond dispute, oh. end quote. And we have, now we know more thanks to 
genetics, and we can, in fact, dispute. within dispute. From India, the technique of sugar refinement spread east towards China and west towards Persia and the early Islamic worlds, eventually reaching the Mediterranean in the 13th century CE. And throughout the Middle Ages, sugar was considered a rare and expensive spice. Rather, I mean, spice is a weird word to use for it, but like, what do you use? Seasoning? Sweetener? It's a spice. It's a spice, Because it yeah. wasn't spice an economic category? I'm just thinking about sugar and spice and everything nice, and, you know, they're differentiated there. But nursery rhymes are not a, a good designation for <laughs> Yeah, they aren't a good, like, tax purposes schema, <laughs> are they? Yeah, no. <laughs> Snips, snails, puppy dog tails. In this economy? Uh, sugar was a rare and expensive spice rather than an everyday ingredient. In fact... This is gross. It was fashionable in the 1500s for European nobility to have blackened and horrible teeth because it showed that they had access to all the sugar they wanted. So it became fashionable to blacken one's teeth to be like, I am upwardly mobile and dentally challenged. It's it's fun to think about flavor profiles. We talked about this um, in our live show. Right? I don't I don't know that we talked about it, but I certainly thought about it while you were talking during our live oh, show. Oh, great. No. <laughs> but mm. just like the uh, so having had some recipe there was like one that was like republican roman era food oh yeah you, and like mesopotamian stuff and like yeah. some of it not for me yeah um, and that's, that's fine. and that is fine it's fun to try to access the past that way yeah 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 and um and there are lots of there are lots of cuisines that have that have more that are very, that are varied in terms of employing bitterness and like mm. tartness uh, yeah. spice. uh but also just like lots of different flavors that yes. are are present and sort of incorporated into food ways um that mm-hmm. you don't see in the traditional cuisine of my people in central Appalachia. Like just b- before we got on the line I told Anna about how I had rice aroni for dinner. <laughs> so, so that's not it's not spicy. That's that's not a that's not an expansive flavor profile yeah no you're not you're not Um, really widening your palate there uh, but it's fun to think about how people in parts of the world any part of the world in the past um that didn't have access to sugar or maple syrup um might have experienced sweet things a baby's laugh a kiss on the forehead help me think of other sweet things no because i hate this Um, so there are certainly fruits and flowers that are sweet and there's honey. We yep. could talk about honey. We're not gonna. Uh, but you can have a listen to episode 94, uh, which is about hunter gatherers for a look at the relationship between humans and the honey guide bird, which is still one of the coolest examples of behavioral evolution I've ever learned about. Yeah. Stop texting and read your... No, um, I'm, t- I'm testing you. And with that... <laughs> So with that, we will wrap up this episode like a stick of snow-cooled maple sugar. Have you ever have you ever experienced that? Snow-cooled so, maple sugar? Yeah. So when I when I went to those sugaring festivals, one of the yeah. things that they do, if it's if it is snowing, and this is a traditional treat, like a traditional sugaring treat that mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure is originates with indigenous groups. I read um, about it in that book. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So they take uh, the the maple syrup that's boiled down. It's very, very thick. And they take it and they pour a little bit out onto the snow. And then as it's cooling, they take a stick and they stick it into the syrup and then they twirl it. Mm-hmm. So it rolls up all of that syrupy caramel like a little lollipop. And then you, you put it in your mouth. And oh, you, fun. And then you spend the rest of the day finding it in your teeth. Yeah. And going, ooh, little treat for me. So thank you for listening. 
Um, and thank you again for sticking with us, like Carmel and Anna's teeth. Uh, I'm sorry, I wrote bad jokes for you to read. That's okay. We'll be I back. I provided in- my own too. You did. The total package comes with jokes. We'll be back in your ears next week with new content, which you can find wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can also find us on social media. On Facebook, we're just The Dirt Podcast. On Twitter, we're at Dirt Podcast. And on Instagram, we're at The Dirt Pod. And you can also find us and all of that over at our website, thedirtpod.com. Thanks for listening. Thank you. Sweet. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV traveling the United States, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, DigTech LLC, Cultural Media, and the Archaeology Podcast Network. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Please consider leaving a review on your favorite podcasting app. You could also consider becoming a member so we can keep content like this free and available to all. Check out pricing and info at arcpodnet.com slash members. Thanks again and have a great day.